0: We are on the last week of the Doctrine of the Atonement, which is chapter 27 this morning. And uh, and then next week, October 7th, I plan to go on to the Doctrine of the Resurrection of Christ. And then October 14th, two topics that aren't really talked about very much, but they're really important. Following on Christ's resurrection, his ascension into heaven and his sitting at the right hand of the Father. And what does that mean in terms of application to our life? So we'll talk about those two on the 14th. And then another topic, October 21st, that isn't often talked about in one package, but the three offices in the Old Testament that Christ fulfilled, the office of prophet, priest, and king. We'll go on and talk about that. And then October 28th, we'll begin at least an overview of the work of the Holy Spirit. That would be chapter 30 in the systematic theology book, and then November 4th, a guest teacher. Um, so that's, that's where we're going. Uh, well, here's where we are. Do you have an outline now? On the back page of your outline, we're on number six. Oh, back page, parentheses, six. Why this sort of death? Everybody, does anybody need an outline? Hold up your hand if you do. No, oh, everybody has one. Thank you, Garth and Sandy. Um, Okay, we had talked about the atonement, and the nature of the atonement, various parts of Christ's sufferings, and understanding the death of Christ. Uh, The penalty was inflicted by the Father, and it made complete payment for us. We talked about, last week, Christ's death as penal substitution. He bore a penalty uh, in our place. He died as our substitute. Now, the question that comes up at this point, to some degree, why this sort of death? That is, why didn't Jesus die by, you know, uh, a, a soldier just striking him with a sword and, uh, and he would die? Or, or, or some other kind of quick uh, death rather than one that was so, so agonizing and was so prolonged. I don't think the Bible explicitly addresses that question. But I am going to suggest something, and that is, I think that it may be that Christ's death was so um, was so hard, and and there involved so much suffering, so that we could see how destructive sin is. That is, so that we could see in a stark, shocking. Portrayal the effects of sin taken to its ultimate conclusion in a human life. Um, Let me explain what I mean. Um, God created us to be like Him, to be in His image, to reflect His character, and in many ways we do that, but and, and that's the essence of, uh, that, that those, those characteristics and ways in which we reflect God's character and we're like him, the, those show the image of God and they show what full, true, uh, beautiful, wonderful humanity was to be like. But many aspects of that humanity were taken away and the crucifixion in a way was an, an extensive dehumanizing of the person of Jesus Christ. So, for instance, God created us to have life, but crucifixion led to death. It's a, it's a, it's a destruction of life that was essence, of the essence of what it means to be human. Another example, <clears throat> God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living soul. So to be able to breathe is essential to humanity. But this, as I explained, uh, I think now three weeks ago, this horrible death by crucifixion, by being suspended and spending the criminal's weight on on his arms, it made it increasingly difficult to breathe and was essentially a very slow, painful death by suffocation. And so... It was a prolonged demonstration of a removal of the ability to breathe, which is the ability to sustain life. And so it was a prolonged removal of, um, of life, uh, showing us the, the really the consequences of sin, that it just drains life from us, ultimately. God created us to have honor as his stewards over creation and his representatives over creation as the pinnacle of his creation. But crucifixion was holding someone up to shame. It was thought to be shameful. Roman citizens could not be crucified. It was only those who were not Roman citizens on whom the Roman Empire allowed crucifixion to be inflicted. And it was being held up to public shame and disrepute. And sin does that. Sin brings shame ultimately, not honor. Um, Another part of humanity with which God created us is that we would have rich and wonderful interpersonal relationships and fellowship with each other. But Jesus was all alone. All his disciples deserted him and fled, it says in the Bible. And so isn't that also a picture of what sin does? It leads to isolation and loneliness. And people who are trapped in sin end up cutting off more and more relationships and being uh, more and more alone. God created us to be in fellowship with Him. But here Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The fellowship, the beautiful fellowship that He had known with the Father from eternity, uh, was temporarily disrupted, so that there was a dehumanizing factor of loss of fellowship with God. And sin does that, doesn't it? It it alienates us from God. Um, a crucifixion was a loss of mobility, the ability to, to move, to walk around, or to move one's arms or feet. And <clears throat> in a way... Um, And and God created us that way, so we have the freedom to to move and to have control over our own bodies. But sin leads, doesn't it lead to bondage and imprisonment and loss of freedom? So starkly, horribly pictured uh, in the loss of freedom, complete loss of freedom even to move um, that Jesus experienced on the cross. God created us to have independence to be able to feed ourselves and uh care for ourselves and and that was denied in the cross so that th- that's a picture I think of sin leading to a loss of ordinary human abilities a loss of independence and sin leads in that direction God created us to be free from pain having bodies that were healthy and and strong um but Jesus on the cross was filled with pain. And I think that reminds us that sin doesn't lead to joy. Sin leads to suffering and pain. And we're seeing a portrayal of the consequences of it. God created us to be innocent, created Adam and Eve in the garden to be innocent, but the cross is a picture of condemnation, being condemned to death, and sin leads to condemnation. God created us to have strength, Uh, as well as health, strength in our bodies. But on the cross, Jesus experienced physical weakness, the loss of that physical strength with which God created us. And isn't that what sin does? You think of someone in bondage to drug addiction or to alcoholism or many other kinds of sin. Eventually, it just leads to physical deterioration, too, all sorts. And sin, so sin leads to weakness. And God created us to be beautiful or handsome or attractive in the way he created us, but... Um, Isaiah 53 talks about the fact that he had no beauty, that we should desire him, and, and his face was marred and, and distorted by the punishment. And isn't that a picture, that sin leads to a loss of, of beauty or attractiveness or desirableness in life, and sin is ugly, and, and its beauty is a lie. It, it has no beauty, ultimately. And so there was a picture of the consequence of sin, Um, and Jesus, and even his clothing was taken away. He He lost all his possessions, but doesn't sin ultimately lead to a loss of all things? And God created us to be in his favor and to have his pleasure and his joy and delight in us, but sin leads to an experience of God's wrath, and that's what Jesus experienced on a cross. So why did Jesus suffer this sort of death? perhaps because it was, in many aspects, taking away of essential qualities of what it is to be truly human in the, in the excellence with which God created us. And it was portrayed in such a stark way, drawn out over time, so that that would be so firmly etched in our minds, this is what sin will do. And here Jesus is taking that penalty for us. So that, through his suffering we could be freed from those things and obtain the the glory of the uh, of the uh, of the excellence with which god has created us and be brought back to to full possession of of uh, of life and breath and honor and relationship and fellowship with god and and mobility and independence and freedom from pain and innocence and strength and attractiveness and and possessions and the favor of God we we could ultimately gain all of those because Jesus took the consequences of sin for us. Do you want I just that's all I want to say about that, but i it's kind of does this seem right to you? It's not in the book, it's sort of some something I was reflecting on afterward, but uh, it seems right to me. It was kind of prompted by something Daryl said in a sermon, maybe last Easter or something about the consequences of sin, and I began reflecting. Do you want to talk about that at all? or Does that seem right to you? Yep. Wayne, I think that the, the, the priests in the Old Testament
1: at the had, um if, if they were godly priests, as they would take that precious, uh, blameless, faultless lamb ah. and take that knife, yeah. To its little throat and cut it, and the blood spewed out, yeah. and that um, that they knew the the horror of um, of sin,, yeah. and because in their hands, that precious little lamb um, or animal would would die yeah. because of their sins and the sins of Israel. Yeah. and the the smell and the flies. And the mm-hmm. grossness of the blood, and the blood mm-hmm. all over mm-hmm. the the priest, and all over his linen, and his feet, and as the blood would run down mm-hmm. those troughs, um, I think it's it's um, Jesus is the lamb, mm-hmm. and 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 being slain like that for mm-hmm. for us as believers. We look to the cross, and it is an amazing thing. Yeah,
0: yeah, Pammy. So sometimes we look at those Old Testament sacrifices. Why did
1: God command that? All these,
0: all these animals being killed, and all this blood and everything. But it's to help us see this is how bad sin is. Mm-hmm. This is how horrible it is. Of course, it should be revolting, mm-hmm. or something. In that, I mean, we appreciate the greatness of what Jesus did mm-hmm. for us through it. But yeah.
1: And you know, the yeah. bad priests. I think you know how they say that. Um, Sometimes uh, sociopathic killers—they uh, begin killing dogs or cats mm. when they're younger, you know, without yep. any feeling. Yep. And I just think, I bet you some of those nasty priests that really didn't trust God, mm. didn't fear God. I bet they almost delighted in, mm, instead, in, doing of that the in of instead of feeling the horribleness of it. that, yeah. Good. Yeah, John. If you, agree, as in First John, I think it is, if if you agree with God that something is a sin and you repent, yeah. Uh, it, it, at this point, uh, could you expect there not to be punishment, but maybe correction? I, mm-hmm. I guess I'm looking for hope in me, <laughs> well, yeah. yeah <laughs>
0: um, complex, a little bit of a complex question. When Christians sin, we don't come under eternal condemnation. There's no loss of heaven or Consequence of going to hell or anything. And we pray for forgiveness. Oftentimes, God just restores His favor to us. But there are times when, and John Powlett mentioned it in the sermon this morning, there are times when God does discipline us for our good. Uh, But it's always out of His favor as a loving parent to do us good, never to do us permanent harm. So, uh, Hebrews 12, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. So, so it's a tremendous difference um, in what we do, and and as you know, we all are reminded by birthdays or surgeries or whatever we are growing older, and we live in a fallen world, and we will uh, eventually all of us, unless Jesus returns, will die. But even that is not punishment. That's because we live in a fallen world, and God has allowed us to follow in Jesus' steps, even the path that He took, and through it. Uh, again, through it, will bring blessing and bring us to great glory, ultimately, even though there are hardships in this life. Okay. Anything else on this? I don't want to take too long on it, but one more over here. Jerry is a guest here from Oregon. Um, Sometimes when we're taking communion, one of the things I do in my own heart is um, contemplate the suffering of Christ on the cross and the dehumanization call it a form of aversion therapy if you like but it brings me back to the reality of what my sin cost Christ mm-hmm. and the fact that when I sin I am again readdressing that issue and trying then to commit myself to the idea I don't want to do this anymore cuz I don't want to cuz when I reflect on what mm. it cost Christ yeah. I don't want to pay I don't want to see that being mocked by my behavior yeah. Thank you, Jerry. Good. I'm just thinking in the middle of these comments, I've heard sometimes people say, I don't like Christianity, I don't like this religion, I don't have this idea of this awfulness of Jesus dying and all the blood and the violence connected with it, and it just turns me off. And I think that those people don't understand that this is showing the consequence of sin. It's showing how awful sin is, and it was necessary that this happened, in order that the consequences of sin would be experienced by Jesus in our place. And it shows what we don't then have to experience um, in so many ways. Okay, well, let's go on um, to the next point, D. There was still more to the atonement than paying the penalty for sin, and if I had left the lesson with just what we talked about the last two weeks, about being a substitute for us, bearing God's wrath in our place, um, paying the penalty for sin, someone could listen to that and say, well, Wayne, yeah, what you said is true, but you missed some parts of the atonement. There's more to it than that. And that's why I want to say, yes, there is more. That was the central part, I think. But there is more, and that is... Um, we have multiple problems before we are forgiven. Number one, we deserve to die. Number two, we deserve to bear God's wrath. Number three, we're separated from God. Number four, we're in bondage to sin. Number five, we face powerful enemies, Satan and his demons. And in a way, the atonement was an answer to all of those aspects of our problem, not just number two, that we deserve to bear God's wrath, or one and two, but also these others. So um, there are different words in the New Testament, that talk about the atonement meeting these needs in different ways. We, we deserve to die. Well, there was a sacrifice to bear the penalty of death in our place. The Greek word often in the New Testament, thusia, a sacrifice. Number two, we deserve to bear God's wrath, and we talked about that at some length. There's propitiation, hilasterion. That is, Jesus bore God's wrath in our place. Number three, we are separated from God. I don't think we really talked about that yet in any, uh, to any degree, but in order for a separation to be healed, we need reconciliation. So if you're alienated from someone, you need to be reconciled to the person. Well, we were separated from God, cut off because of our sin, and uh, the, the atonement is viewed as reconciliation. So um, 2 Corinthians 5, 18-19 talks about the atonement in this way. I didn't put those verses up there, but I'll just uh, read them. 2 Corinthians 5. 18 to 19. Um, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God was in Christ, that is in Christ. God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. And so the verbs katalaso, apocatalasso are used to talk about the atonement as reconciliation. That's also important to remember. And then we are in bondage to sin, and we need redemption to to redeem us or buy us out of bondage. The nouns lutron or anti-lutron, the verb lutrao, to ransom from sin and the kingdom of Satan. So the Son of Man came to uh, give his life as a ransom for many. Or uh, Titus... 2:14, 2:14, Titus 2:14, who gave himself to purify, who gave himself for us to redeem us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. And so uh, there is uh, redemption or ransom. And then number five, we face powerful enemies, but Christ triumphed over Satan and demons on the cross, and that's another aspect of the atonement. Um, so, um, he disarmed, Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public example of them or put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him that is in Christ on the cross. And so, there are just other aspects of the atonement so that we get a full picture. And we could spend more time on all of those, but actually I'm going to go on now. My application of this, I'm trying to draw application more frequently in the class, application is we shouldn't neglect any of these aspects of the atonement, and we certainly shouldn't deny any of them. Uh, Okay, Jesus paid a sacrifice, gave up his life. Wow, we are free from death, that is from eternal death, and so even our physical death is going to lead us into fullness of life. We can be thankful for that. Uh, Propitiation, well, we're never going to face God's wrath. My goodness. What a blessing. We, we, we face perhaps the discipline of a loving father, but we never face the wrath of, uh, of an infinitely holy God who's going to say, I'm going to punish you eternally for that sin because that's all taken care of. So we don't face that anymore. It's tremendous blessing, tremendous relief, free from the vague fear that the many people in the world feel that they'll be under God's wrath forever. Uh, and they will, unless they trust in Christ. Reconciliation. Well, if that's true, if the atonement brought us reconciliation, well, then we have fellowship with God. We can spend time with him in prayer. We can read his word and he speaks to us. We can worship him and know that he hears our worship and he delights in it. That's reconciliation. Tremendous application from that. And we have fellowship with each other as believers. And that's a great blessing. Rather than being alienated and separated and cut off from other people, we have fellowship together with each other. And um, redemption, Uh, we're free from bondage to sin and bondage to Satan. And and we've we've talked about this somewhat in the past. We'll talk about it more in the future. Uh, Because of what Christ has done, we can be progressively more and more free from sin in our lives, more and more leading lives of holiness. John Powhatan talked about that this morning as well. And um, we can be free from... Satan triumphing over us or getting victory over us. Though we face attacks from him, we have promises by which we can triumph. And so, uh, victory, we have power to triumph over Satan and demons as well. So, that's the richness of the atonement and various applications. Now, I want to go on and say there, in history, there have been some incorrect views of the atonement. Well, you think through 2,000 years of the church, you might get some strange views that are taught, and there were some strange views taught, uh, some early in the history of the church and some at other times. Um, <clears throat> uh, one is the ransom to Satan theory, <clears throat> um, where you see language of ransom. <clears throat> in the Bible, this teacher in the early church named Origen, who, who was in, very many, in many ways very, very good, but he wasn't perfect. And he had some mistakes. Um, and uh, here he said, well it's a ransom must have been a ransom that God paid to Satan to free uh, to free uh, people from bondage to Satan. It's a strange idea. it's not taught in the New Testament. Satan didn't have any hold over us, any payment that was due to him. the, 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 the ransom was to free us from from the bondage to sin and and the payment was that, that Jesus made the payment to God himself in terms of uh, the payment to, to, to earn our freedom. And so that, that's just a bad idea, and I don't know if anybody else has held it in the history of the church, but it just gets mentioned as one mistake. Number two, <clears throat> the moral influence theory. Now, number, number two, three, and four are substitute ideas for propitiation. Number two, three, and remember I talked about last week, Joel Green, Judith gundry Wolf, Steve Chalk in England, these people under 5C above on this page who are denying the doctrine of penal substitution, denying the doctrine that Jesus bore the wrath of God against our sin. Well, then people say, well, then how do they understand the atonement? What, what's the point of Jesus' death? And in history, there have been these alternative theories, and they take some combination of them and use them in a substitute for holding to propitiation, well one and and, and some of them have some truth to them, but they're partial truths. so here's one: the moral influence theory. the moral influence theory is that the atonement shows how much God loves us, and that that moral influence will lead us to love God in return. In other words, um, don't think about any payment for sin. just Jesus came and and uh, and God sent him to live in this world where there's a lot of suffering and sin, and he suffered, and that demonstrates that God loves us, so don't you love him in return? No payment for sin. Well, there's a little truth in that, in that it does show God's love, but it's not the whole truth, and it's it's taking an aspect of it, a partial truth, and trying to make it a whole truth. What it denies is it denies the objective character of the atonement. What I mean by that is... Something really happened. God put the wrath and punishment that was due to our sin on Christ, and he accepted that payment. Something happened in the transaction between God the Son and God the Father when Christ died on the cross. It's an objective reality. It's not just how it does good for us later. It's that something really happened in history, in in the, in the history of the universe, in the history of how God relates to the universe. It was an objective reality, and it was accomplished. And this moral influence view says, oh, the only point was to show us God cares for the world. Um, so that denies the objective character of the atonement. Another view that's an incorrect view, if it's the only view that's held, is the view called Christ, it's called the example theory of, of the atonement, but I call it the Christ-as-example theory because then it gets you to understand the meaning of it. Um, it's this. Christ's death gives us an example of how to trust God and live for others, just like other heroic people have suffered for others in the past. See? Um, and uh, it, it just it shows you that if you are a righteous person, you will have persecution in this world, and just look at Jesus and follow his example. Well, there's some truth in that. He did leave us an example that we should follow in his steps. So there's, there's partial truth there. But again, if you say the only reason Jesus came was to show us how to face suffering and trust in God, if you say that's all there was, an example for us, you deny the objective character of the atonement. You deny that something actually happened, that a payment was made for our sin. And so you've got a partial truth and made it into the whole truth. Another theory is the governmental theory of the atonement and this is a this is a, a little bit harder to grasp. If you say to someone who holds this, "Why did Jesus come and die?" Well, it shows that there was something wrong with the world. God's laws had been broken and somebody had to pay some kind of penalty showing the seriousness of sin. And so so that should shock us and help us to say, oh, sin is bad, we shouldn't go there. It's sort of like the teacher who has 30 students in the class and and doesn't know who, um, what, did something bad in the class, uh, broke the window, and nobody will tell. So the teacher says, all right, uh, Sally, I'm going to punish you. And, And then Sally has to go stand in the corner for an hour or something. Sally might not have done it but just shows the teacher is really upset. <laughs> okay? It's it's making an example out of somebody to show that something went wrong. And so God just chose Jesus and made him an example to show that the government of the universe had been tampered with. And so somebody had to suffer and in fact God sent his own son to do that. That's the governmental theory. Again, there's a little sliver of truth here. There's a partial truth. I mean, when Jesus came and suffered, it does show that something's wrong with the moral behavior of the universe. But once again, it denies the objective character of the atonement. It denies the central truth of it, that Jesus bore the wrath of God against our sin. And so it just says, oh, well, Jesus came to suffer to show us something's wrong. Well, that's, not the, that's, not the, that's missing the main point. That's missing the, the bearing of God's wrath and the penalty for us. So those are incorrect views of the atonement if they are held as the only views. And the first one, of course, is completely incorrect. All right. Still with me? We have got one more thing to do here. Two more things. Oof, i got to hurry. Two more things. One is, did Christ descend into hell? Why do I even bring this up? Because in churches throughout the world that use the Apostles' Creed and Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant churches do use the Apostles' Creed, you start reading in it and it says this, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord and the life everlasting. Amen. How many people have heard that phrase before, he descended into hell? 100% of you. Okay, so it is important that we talk about it. Because you say that and you say, whoa, what does that mean? He descended into hell. People wonder. Did Christ descend into hell? Well, first, if you look back at historical documents of where the Apostles' Creed came from, it's different from other creeds. Um, the Nicene Creed was written in one place at one time, in Nicaea, in 325 A.D., revised in Constantinople in 381 A.D., and you can find the exact dates. The Athanasian, uh, the the Chalcedonian Creed was written in, uh, in uh, Chalcedon outside of Istanbul in 451 A.D. It was a certain place, a certain time, and people wrote it and they said, we agree, and okay, let's all go home, it's done. But the Apostles' Creed wasn't that way. The Apostles' Creed was kind of like a snowball that gathers more and more snow to it as it rolls along and maybe some of you in Arizona don't know what a snowball is, but if you <laughs> grew up in Wisconsin, you know you can push this snowball and as it rolls it gets more snow on it so um, the Apostles Creed was well, there were sort of some statements of what people believed, and then some more were added and it got, kind of got widely circulated and there were different different rev- revisions of it and The phrase, he descended into hell, wasn't in any early copies. It's not found historically until one copy in 390 A.D., reported by a man named Rufinus. And then it doesn't occur in any other versions of this Apostles' Creed until 650 A.D. So, does that go back to the Apostles? Uh, 390 A.D.? Well, that's, that's 300 years or more after the last apostle died. That isn't written by any apostle. And Rufinus, when he talks about it, he says, well, you know, these versions that had this didn't have the phrase buried. And so historians who look at this think it probably, first, he was crucified, dead, he descended into the grave. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. Because the Hebrew word sheol and the Greek word hades can both mean hell or the grave, or the state of death. They can have multiple meanings. And so I think, I think as I've looked into this historically, I think it came about first by a confusion. He was crucified dead. He descended into the grave. The third day, he rose from the dead. But then when people got crucified dead and buried you get buried here, and then keep he descended into hell, it makes people think it's something after he was buried, doesn't it? And so after that, then people made up all sorts of explanations that wouldn't contradict sound doctrine, but but really aren't what you think when you say he descended into hell. Some people say, it means he suffered the pains of death on the cross, or the pains of hell on the cross. Well, theologically that's true, but when you put it after buried... It's it's kind of wondering, all right? And other people have said... Well, then there are some other theories that are questionable, that he went and proclaimed release to Old Testament saints so they could go to heaven. I'm not sure that the Bible teaches that. He went and proclaimed to uh, sinful people that they'd never get out. (laughs) That's a popular view today, but I I don't think the Bible says that. Um, So... uh, Oh, he went to hell and proclaimed to people they could have a second chance for salvation if they hadn't believed first. I don't think the Bible teaches that. So you get all sorts of strange views as well. Where does the Bible support the idea that what happened when Jesus died, when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and he breathed his last? Uh, What happened? Well, there are some verses that people look at that could say that then Jesus' spirit went... to the underworld or to hell. I don't think they prove it, but here are the verses. One is, Acts 2.27, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Um, If you translate that as hell, then it would lead you to think that Jesus was in hell at some point. But I don't think we have to translate it that way. I think it probably just means you will not abandon my soul to the grave or to the state of being dead. Those are both legitimate meanings for the Greek word Hades that is used there. So that, that doesn't that doesn't really convince me that Jesus descended into hell. Romans 10, 6 and 7, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead, but Christ is near you. And so... Uh, does this say that Christ was in the abyss or in hell? No. The ver- read the verse. It says, do, what is that word? Do not. Do not say this. Do not say, oh, I've got to travel up to heaven so that we could be near Christ. Don't say, oh, you've got to go to the abyss to be near Christ. Those are both wrong. He's near you. So I don't want to build a doctrine on a statement that the Bible says don't say. You with me? Okay. So I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that's a convincing verse. What about Ephesians 4 Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? King James Version, New King James, New American Standard, and early printings of the English Standard Version, I'm sorry to say, put into the lower parts of the earth, But even if you translate it this way, I think the of is just a genitive of apposition, as we would say, the city of Phoenix. That means the city which is Phoenix, right? The city of Phoenix. And so I think this means the lower parts of the earth, that is the lower parts, that is the the lower, the lower earthly region, I think it means Jesus came from heaven to the earth. So he descended into the lower regions, that is, the earth. So I think it's a genitive of apposition. So strongly do most people think that's what it means, that, that this is the common translation today, he had also descended into the lower regions, comma, the earth. And That's a very legitimate translation of uh, the Greek genitive case which is there. So I think it means the lower parts, that is, the earth. So I don't think that means that Jesus descended into hell. Well, what about 1 Peter 3? 1 Peter 3. For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Oh, does that mean that after Jesus died, he went and preached to people in hell? He went and proclaimed or preached to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now, first thing I want to say about this passage is it is much disputed. (laughs) Okay? But I have a little bit more to say about it. Um, uh, Let's read it again. He went and preached to the spirits in prison or proclaimed because, and there's a technical question of Greek grammar having to do with how a participle modifies a verb. But it's very legitimate to translate this. He preached the spirits in prison when they formerly did not obey. I think that's the best translation. I've argued for that extensively in writing, but not everybody agrees with it yet. (laughs) So we just wait for the arguments to be persuasive. But anyway, think about this. Read it this way. He, he went and preached or proclaimed to the spirits in prison when they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. My answer to this verse is, I think it means that Christ was preaching through Noah at the time of the flood. And I, let's see, I, have, I published a commentary on 1 Peter in the Tyndale New Testament commentary series And I have a long appendix on that, pages 203 to 239, where I go through all the various interpretations and evidence for it. But I'm arguing that I think what Peter means here, and it fits the context, is that just as Noah was faithful in bearing witness to God and preaching to the people around him in a sinful generation before the flood came, so Peter says, you are suffering and your neighbors are opposing you, but you need to be faithful witnesses too because God saved Noah and he'll save you. Another reason for, I think, I think, that is that this proclaimed or preached, this, uh, this, uh, this verb, keruso, is picked up by the corresponding noun in 2 Peter 2.5, where it says, Noah is a preacher of righteousness. Kerux is the corresponding noun. So there's a parallel in Peter's thinking. He says, Noah is a preacher of righteousness. And then did Peter think that Christ was preaching through the Old Testament prophets? Oh, yes. Peter says in chapter 1, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired about this, this salvation. They inquired what person or time was indicated by the Spirit of Christ within them when they were proclaiming the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Peter talks about the Spirit of Christ preaching through the Old Testament prophets already. So he could have the idea that the Spirit of Christ was preaching through Noah. It would be very consistent with his thinking, and he calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. So, And especially if we translate it when, I think it means Christ preached or proclaimed to the spirits in prison when they formerly did not obey. That's when he preached. It was in the days when the ark was being built. Noah was preaching, and Christ was preaching through him. Well, I think that's what it means, but I have to admit it's disputed, and um, and evangelical interpreters have disputed. But it certainly does. So, what does that mean? Jesus died in the flesh. He was alive in the spirit, and then and then Peter says, you know what? In the spiritual realm, a uh, long time ago, Jesus was already active in the world, preaching through Noah. Okay, that's my solution. Well, what about this one? Last verse in terms of a descent into hell. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that those that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Here's one other verse where people say, oh, wait a minute, Jesus went to hell and preached to people a gospel so they could repent. I don't think it means that. I think it means the gospel was preached earlier to those who are now dead. When it was preached, they were alive. That is... That is why the gospel was preached 10 or 15 years ago or 20 years ago to those who are now dead so that they could live in the Spirit. That is so they could come to faith. So I don't think that means that Jesus went to hell either. And I think there's some reason to think Jesus did not descend into hell. Luke 2.23, he said to the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise in 2 Corinthians and Revelation, it's two other uses. It means heaven in the New Testament, that Greek word paradisos Today you will be with me in heaven in the presence of God, Jesus is saying to the thief. He's not, gonna, he's not saying you'll be with me in hell. Jesus went into the presence of God. His spirit did. Or John 19.30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. His suffering was finished. There's no more going to hell to suffer anymore. It was finished on the cross. And then Luke 23.46 46. When Jesus was dying, he called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That, I think, implies that he expected that God the Father in heaven would receive his spirit. So the same thing happened to Jesus when he died. It happens to us when we die. Our bodies are laid in the earth, but our spirits go into heaven to be with God. And that happened to Jesus. And Stephen, when he was dying, Say, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I think he's echoing what Jesus said on the cross. Same idea. So my conclusion regarding the Apostles' Creed is I don't believe that Christ descended into hell. And so, when I'm in a church where they're reciting the Apostles' Creed, I say it like this. Uh, he was crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day, he rose from the dead. I just don't say the words he descended into hell because I don't believe them. What I believe is when Jesus died, his body remained on the earth and was buried, but his spirit returned to the presence of God in heaven until Easter Sunday morning. When his spirit came back, joined to his body, and he was raised to new life. Application. Even famous ancient creeds do not equal scripture. And people say, it's been around so long. And my response is, even an old mistake is still a mistake. Number two, Christ's suffering ended on the cross. He didn't descend into hell after that. His Suffering was done. It is finished. And number 3 there's no second chance for salvation he didn't go to hell and offer a second chance for salvation to people in hell Okay now here's where we are we're at 1057 I didn't get to the last part the extent of the atonement it is a contra- it is a really controversial topic I'm not going to omit it I'm going to take that topic for the first 10 maybe 15 minutes of class Next week, before I go on to the resurrection. And I didn't give you any chance to interact on Did He Send It to Hell? So, next week, come back. We'll do that too. You're dismissed.